Last time we spoke, in length, better to say we spoke far too much about the war in China. I do apologize for how long that one went on, but really, I barely even scratched the surface. Now while the focus up until this point has largely been on the history of Asia and those entering the conflict in 1941, this episode is going to take a little detour. While what is being called the China War by the Japanese, or the Second Sino-Japanese War, is going on, across the globe, another major conflict is going to hit the scene, and that is the War in Europe. This episode will summarize the War in Europe until late 1940, but not just that, it will also help to explain the relationship it had with the simultaneous war in China. Both fed off each other, and a lot more than you might think. This week's episode is The War in Europe. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I would like to just remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of the Second World War? I recommend their episode on the Battle of Stalingrad or the Battle of the Bulge. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. And please, subscribe to them over at YouTube, and help us continue to produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hell, if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel on YouTube, where you can find a few videos like the Battle of Midway, or perhaps Soviet Women Snipers of World War II. Give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. For four bitter and long years, the world was devastated by World War I. Around 20 million died from the war or famine or disease, with another 20 million wounded. The Entente powers lost about 5.7 million soldiers, while the Central powers lost around 4 million. Germany would take like 52% of the Central powers' casualties right on the chin. Bang. These numbers, by the way, are in no way 100% accurate. They are still largely debated, and it depends on many different factors, like missing and presumed deaths, etc. Then you need to take into consideration the other 25 to a possible 50 million dead from the Spanish flu. Just outstanding numbers. Kind of puts into perspective our current situation with COVID-19. It goes without saying, the world had suffered enough, so another major conflict was to be strictly avoided, particularly by the great powers who saw the horrors of the Western and Eastern Front for themselves. Yet in the end, the Great War in many ways is argued to have been nothing more than a ceasefire. There are countless reasons for why World War II occurred, and one of them largely was the outcome of World War I. At the end of the Great War, there were arguably very few nations who you could say came out well. If you did have to name any, I would argue the biggest winners were the United States and Japan. The United States emerged the world leader in industry 
Economics and Trade After World War I Before the war, Britain was the world's economic superpower. After the war, it was America. The world's bank that sat in London for so long had now moved to New York. Many people find economic history quite boring, but honestly, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how the economies of nations are one of the largest causations of war. The total value of U.S. exports grew from $2.4 billion in 1913 to $6.2 billion in 1917. Most went to Great Britain, France, and Russia, which all scrambled for war materials. World War I literally set off a 44-month period of growth for the United States. American factories produced 3.5 million rifles, 20 million artillery rounds, 633 million pounds of gunpowder, over 21,000 airplane engines. Americans' co-belligerents borrowed over $10.3 billion from the United States. Now you might be thinking, well yeah, of course, everyone knows America widely profited off World War I, but they were not alone. Like I said, if you asked me who were the big winners, I would also include Japan. As we said in previous episodes, Japan's entry into World War I was largely an opportunistic venture. Japan seized the German concessions in China, such as Tsingtao, and its colonial holdings in the Pacific, such as the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Marshall Islands. They did have to siege Tsingtao, and it was a bloody but small battle, yet in all honesty, it was a cakewalk. The islands they seized were all garrisoned by a few colonial symbolic troops, and maybe a handful of police, so they most certainly were freebies, to say the least. Japan then went on, beginning to help the Western war effort by supplying with the Japanese Red Cross to the Western Front. Not out of the goodness of their hearts, mind you. It was all done because the Japanese government wanted to earn recognition on the world stage. When the British begged Japan to help them in the Mediterranean, the Japanese government kept making excuses not to do so, until Britain offered something of real value to voice support for the territories Japan seized after the war had concluded. Similar to the United States, Japan's economy boomed from the war. Exports quadrupled from 1913 to 1918. Towards the end of the war, Japan was filling orders for much-needed war materials for all of the European allies, and this wartime boom helped diversify its own industry, transferring Japan from a debtor to a creditor nation for the first time. Then, the most important part of it all was Japan being invited to the table during the Paris Peace Conference. Not only was Japan invited to the table, she got to sit alongside the Big Four, Britain, America, France, and Italy. Japan earned a permanent seat on the new Council of the League of Nations, and officially emerged as a great power. The number one goal Japan sought since being forcefully opened. However, as we also mentioned, when Japan pressed its amendment, the racial equality proposal, they were shot down. This humiliating moment scarred Japan as the great powers had done this time and time again. Yet still, if you were asking me who was the biggest winner of World War I, I would place the United States and Japan on the top of the list. Now who was the biggest loser? That's a tougher question. But in the end, I could say that the one that took 
the most on the chin would have to be Germany. The Treaty of Versailles, which honestly could be this entire podcast, give or take, for two hours, but don't worry, I wouldn't do that to you, was in itself one of the largest reasons for the inevitable Second World War. Love him or hate him, John Mayard Keynes referred to the Treaty of Versailles as, quote, a Carthaginian peace. A misguided attempt to destroy Germany on behalf of French revanchism, rather than establishing a fair or even logical principle for maintaining peace. A future Adolf Hitler would say of the treaty, quote, The treaty was made in order to bring 20 million Germans to their deaths and to ruin the German nation. End of quote. For those of you not familiar with the treaty, I will try to summarize it in terms of its effects on Germany, because in reality, the treaty left a sour taste in the mouths of all three nations that would make up the Axis later on. The Treaty of Versailles stipulated that there would never again be an Anschluss, that being the merging of Germany and Austria. Germany would lose all territorial gains it made during the war, such as the much-desired Alsace-Lorraine province, that both Germany and France had fought over historically for some time. Germany lost all of its colonies in Africa, Asia, and in the Pacific. Germany had to recognize the independence of Czechoslovakia, Poland, and the newly established free city of Danzig. Tearing off chunks of the German Empire and isolating Prussia from it. Germany was to have no more than 100,000 men in its army. The navy could only have 15,000, alongside a long list of military restrictions on things like how many warships it could have. Germany had to pay 20 billion gold marks, roughly equal to $5 billion in reparation payments. That one pushed heavily by France, by the way. Oh, and number one, the war was blamed all on Germany. The entire war guilt was placed on her shoulders. I am not trying to knock on France by any means. France took the lion's share of fighting in World War I, but when it came to the peace conference, France had anything but peace in mind. The French delegates advocated the most extreme terms in all regards because it was their intention to break up Germany into what had been for centuries more of a cluster of small city-states. Marshal Ferdinand Foch of France said of the treaty, quote, This is not peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. End of quote. Why did he say it like this? It was a criticism over France failing to annex the Rhinelands during the peace talks. Everyone came to the table with different intentions, none of them merely for peace. Another unhappy nation was that of Italy, who came to the peace conference looking for quite a bit of territorial gain. Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando and the Italian Foreign Minister Sidney Sonino demanded territory along Italy's border with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, stretching from Trentino to the city of Trieste to parts of Dalmatia and to the Albanian city of Vlor, and the numerous islands on the Adriatic coast. Now, Britain and France promised Italy a lot of these territorial gains to get them into the war, and they promised just about everyone similar things. 
Britain particularly made a mess of promising just about every nation anything they could, often conflicting with the promises they made to other nations. When the war ended, Britain and France felt Italy did not contribute as much as they should have. Italy had indeed delayed and bungled up the Austro-Hungarians, but they did not do enough in the Mediterranean and Adriatic Seas, despite multiple pleas to do stuff. Now, Italy wanted territory not only in what was Austro-Hungary, but they wanted territory from the newly formed Yugoslavia, because it completely overlooked the state's sovereignty. Italy got the territory of Trentino and of Tyrol in the end. Italy did not receive, however, control over the Dalmatian coast and that of Fiume which is part of Croatia today. Woodrow Wilson was the main proponent to thwart Italian seizures of these Yugoslav territories, and when the Italians found out that they would not get them, Vittorio Orlando suffered a nervous breakdown and walked out of the conference. This threatened the entire conference, and the Italians only returned ten days later. Vittorio lost his position as prime minister in the meantime. Italians were extremely bitter about what they called a mutilated victory. One Italian journalist, who originally was a devout socialist, began a new political movement while serving in World War I. He denounced classical Marxism in favor of a new idea built upon ultra-nationalism. In 1914, he formed the political movement the Fauci d'Azione, Revolution Zenaria whom would call themselves fascisti. This man was promoted the rank of corporal after taking part in the Third Battle of Isonzio in October of 1915, and the inspector general said, quote, He was promoted to the rank of corporal for merit in war. The promotion was recommended because of his exemplary conduct and fighting quality, his mental calmness, and lack of concern for discomfort. His zeal and regularity in carrying out his assignments, where he was always first in every task involving labor and fortitude. End of quote. By the end of World War I, he had served nine months of action and was wounded. When the war ended, like most of his compatriots, he felt bitter hate for the outcome for Italy. He began a political movement and in 1918 called for the emergence of a man to revive the entire Italian nation to do, quote, ruthless and energetic enough to make a clean sweep. He followed this up with remarks about socialism, such as, Socialism as a doctrine was already dead. It continued to exist only as a grudge. End of quote. This man, as you probably have guessed, was Benito Mussolini, who was most famously the man who marched on Rome and became the fascist dictator of Italy. His marching on Rome, by the way, as one of my professors said, was much more like Mussolini was on a horse with a gun on his back being pushed forward to Rome. <laughs> yes, the rise of Mussolini is a crazy story, but we can't dwell too much into it here. Now, as we have mentioned, the three future Axis powers, and how they shared this resentment of the outcome of World War I, in many ways, this is why they gradually came together. Of course, it's a lot more complicated than that, but you kind of get the picture. Now, after the Great War, Germany 
was radically changed. What we now see is the Weimar Republic. This new German Republic is facing just a few small issues like hyperinflation, political extremism, to the point multiple coups are occurring, reparation payments are strangling the entire nation to its very core, oh, and the feeling all the German people had surrendered a war in which the enemy never even set foot onto German land. Indeed, it's during the period right after World War I where many things occur in Germany all at once. Erich von Ludendorff is often credited with perpetuating a myth that would haunt Germany. This myth is known as the stab-in-the-back myth. Apparently during a 1919 conversation, British General Sir Neil Malcolm asked Ludendorff why he thought Germany lost the war. Ludendorff listed many excuses. One included that the home front had failed the army. Their conversation went, quote, Malcolm asked him, Do you mean, General, that you were stabbed in the back? Ludendorff's eyes lit up, and he leapt upon the phrase like a dog on a bone. Stabbed in the back? Yes, that's it, exactly. We were stabbed in the back. And thus was born a legend, which was never entirely perished. End of quote. What this idea meant was that while the German army fought bitterly to bleed France dry on the Western Front, it was actually problems within the Fatherland that brought Germany to her knees. It was not the soldiers' fault. In fact, the German army did not lose World War I. It was the civilians on the home front. More specifically, it was revolutionary socialists who created social unrest. These revolutionary socialists were also called the November Criminals of 1918. Those who began to strike instead of producing the arms and work, the industry that was so vital to the German army, which was needed at a crucial moment in the war. As you might know, by the end of World War I, the German home front was indeed ripe for issues. The country was starving. The German navy revolted which became a civil conflict, which then became the German Revolution of 1918-1919, to leading to the creation of the Weimar Republic. Yeah, it was a real mess. The stab-in-the-back myth, of course, was the German home front was to blame for the loss of the war. When the last German offensive of 1918 failed, both Ludendorff and Hindenburg admitted that the war effort was doomed. But like many, many others in history who held top commands, passing the buck of blame was the logical conclusion. The real problem, and why I am even talking about this myth, is when certain people drink the Kool-Aid and put their own spin on it, well, it's going to create a lot of problems. A certain element of civil unrest was that of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, a communist government that tried to gain a foothold in Germany but was ultimately crushed by other political groups. This group happened to have Jewish leaders, which did not go unnoticed by those writing anti-communist propaganda at the time, and thus a link between Jews and communism began to take hold. One man, the leader of the Deutsch Volkischena Schutz und Trutzband, the German Nationalist Protection and Defiance Federation, Alfred Roth wrote a book called 
the Jew in the army, which perpetuated the idea Jews joined the German army only taking part as profiteers, spies, and began to spread defeatism amongst the ranks. Such work was not too rare, as others, such as the Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, the German Workers' Party, were also expelling such vile propaganda. One Anton Drexler of the party would speak publicly often with anti-Semitic, anti-Marxist, anti-capitalist, and nationalist-oriented fever. One man who, like most German veterans, felt bitter resentment for the outcome of the war was looking everywhere for a culprit to the situation. This man would go on to write one of the most influential books of his time while in prison for an attempted coup in Munich. He wrote in such a passionate way that it inspired those in Germany that felt their service in the military was betrayed. One quote that I have selected, it goes as follows, quote, Already in the winter of 1915-1916 I had come through that inner struggle. The will had asserted its incontestable mastery. Whereas in the early days I went into a fight with a cheer and a laugh I was now habitually calm and resolute, and that frame of mind endured. Fate might now put me through the final test, without my nerves or reason giving way. The young volunteer had become an old soldier. The same transformation took place throughout the army. Constant fighting had aged and toughened it and hardened it, so that it stood firm and dauntless against every assault. Only now was it possible to judge that army, after two and three years of continuous fighting, have been thrown into one battle after another, standing up stoutly against superior numbers and superior armament, suffering hunger, privation, a time had come when one could assess the value of that singular fighting force. For 9,000 years to come, nobody would dare to speak of heroism without recalling the German army of the World War. And then from the dim past will emerge the immortal vision of those solid ranks of steel helmets that never flinched and never faltered. And as long as Germans live, they will be proud to remember that these men were the sons of their forefathers. End of quote. As you can imagine, such rhetoric went a long way with veterans of World War I and inspired the youth who were just coming into a new world, a world that seemingly sought to humiliate and break apart what was Germany. Yet this man brought with him such vigor and passion for the struggle of the German Volk, as it were. He, of course, accompanied all of this by pointing fingers at people he deemed to be the culprits that betrayed the German army. I have selected another quote that talks about the stab in the back myth and what became known as the big lie. It is as follows, quote, Just when the preparations were being made to launch a final offensive, which would bring a seemingly eternal struggle to an end, while endless columns of transports were bringing men and munitions to the front, and while the men were being trained for that final onslaught, 
than it was the greatest act of treachery during the whole war was accomplished in Germany. Germany must not win the war. At that moment, when victory seemed ready to alight on the German standards, a conspiracy was arranged for the purpose of striking at the heart of the German spring offensive, which one blow from the rear and thus making victory impossible. A general strike in the munition factories was organized. If this conspiracy could achieve its purpose, the German front would have collapsed and the wishes of the Vorwarts that this victory should not take the side of the German banners would have been fulfilled. For want of munitions, the front would be broken through within a few weeks. The offensive would be effectively stopped and the Entente saved. Then the international finance would assume control over Germany and the eternal objective of the Marxist national betrayal would be achieved. That objective was the destruction of the national economic system and the establishment of an international capitalist domination in its stead. And this goal has really been reached thanks to the stupid crudity of the one side and the unspeakable treachery of another. End of quote. And don't worry, guys, I'm not going to do accents for everyone. I was just having a little bit of fun there. Of course, as you might have guessed, these are quotes from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Hitler was greatly influenced by those like Ludendorff, who sought to place blame where it was possible for the collapse of the German Empire. Ironically, Ludendorff would drive blame for the communists, whom came about largely because of his own actions when he exported Lenin to the Russian Empire to bring it down. Regardless, as funny as it may sound, I do recommend reading Mein Kampf if you get the chance, the Stalag edition for English readers. Why would I recommend reading it? Quite simple. After reading it, you immediately come to realize the utter stupidity of it. Just from a historical perspective, Hitler completely makes up a fantasy history of the world that has zero basis in reality. His ideas, however, were quite contagious for the time, and by simply pulling at the strings of those hearts of the people who felt betrayed, he was able to infect them like a virus. I could go on forever about the rise of Hitler. I took quite a few courses in academia on the age of dictators, but the show must really go on, so you're going to get a more abridged version. Though, if you are looking for perhaps a more entertaining visual look at the rise of Hitler, might I recommend The Rise of Evil, starring Robert Carlyle. It is not a 100% accurate, nothing on the silver screen is, so to say, but it gives a half-decent amount of the story, and it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. Robert Carlyle did a very good job. It's worth a watch. So back to the Weimar Republic. Unlike the Roaring Twenties seen in the United States, the Republic faced unbelievable social unrest. As a complete rejection of the Treaty of Versailles, certain political movements began in the Republic, one being the Deutsche Arbeite Party, which we mentioned was infiltrated and taken over by the charismatic Adolf Hitler, who rebranded it the Nationalsozialistische 
Deutsche Arbeiterpartie, the uh, Nazi party. Forgive me for that terrible pronunciation. At first, the Nazi party largely failed to gain any ground in the democratically-led republic. This led Hitler to perform the legendary Beer Hall Push, which was a coup d'etat attempt. Erich Ludendorff accompanied this attempt, but it was quelled and those responsible were put on trial for treason, including Adolf Hitler. However, when Hitler was on trial, he made such an incredible performance, dictating all his actions to be done in devotion to the good of the German people, and that he was trying to save them from the usual culprit, the Jews. The judges happened to be pro-Nazis and gave Hitler a slap-on-the-wrist sentence, so to say. He was put in jail for five years alongside Rudolf Hess, who would become his deputy. It was in jail where Hitler wrote his famous book, Mein Kampf, selling one million copies in 1933. Hitler was released from prison quite early. He only served like nine months. And then he had to promise that if he led the Nazi party again, they would adhere to the democratic actions and no more attempts at coups. During this time, the Weimar Republic was still as chaotic as ever but certain political leaders did seem to have a grasp of it, and were gradually improving the conditions of the German people. As the times got better for the people, things got worse for the Nazi party. Their strongest base was always the depressed working class, hindered by the terrible conditions of the Weimar Republic. But as things got better, they began to ignore the Nazi party. In fact, if you look at the election results, they were horrendous in the beginning, in 1928, the Nazis won a grand total of 2.6% of the vote. But then something happened which saved the Nazi party. The Great Depression hit. The deterioration of the economy saw yet again more chaos. Unemployment and business failures were widespread. The Social Democrats and Communists were bitterly divided and unable to formulate any effective solution, giving the Nazi party ripe conditions to grow. The struggling German people sought solutions which their current leaders did not seem to have. Hitler promised a strong central government with an economic recovery plan built alongside a racial cleansing project. Hitler did all of this pioneering with the use of radio to amazing effect. In the 1930 election, the Nazis won 18.3% of the vote, which was a huge improvement during the 1931-1932 years, Hitler was emboldened and ran for president against Paul von Hindenburg. The Nazi party accompanied this moment by letting loose their paramilitary forces, the Sturmabteilung, storm detachments. These were the brown shirts. Many areas of Germany were literally reduced to combat zones, with street battles going on between the SA and the communists. Hitler began to promise he would restore law and order, which is ironic since it was him creating the chaos. Hindenburg and Hitler met in private. Each, by the way, had nicknames for another. Hindenburg referred to Hitler as the Austrian corporal, chiding his Austrian accent. Hitler referred to Hindenburg as that old fool or the old reactionary. In the end, Hindenburg won the presidency, but this in no way stopped Hitler, as in 1932, the election saw the Nazi party earning 37.3% of the vote. 
over 162 seats. Alongside this, Hitler demanded to be appointed Chancellor, and Hindenburg rejected this. The situation between the Nazi party and the communists was that they held 52% of the vote and a majority of the seats. Both parties opposed the established political system, and neither would join or support the ministry, and thus a majority government could not be formed. As you can imagine, this forced yet again another election in 1933, and nothing changed, though the Nazis fell to 33% of the vote. Hitler demanded Hindenburg appoint him chancellor again, and many influential people twisted Hindenburg's arm this time to allow for it, as the Nazis would only hold a minority government, and they needed the government to stabilize to get anything done at this point. Thus Hitler became chancellor on January the 30th of 1933. The Great Depression was wearing off, and it seemed the Nazi party was doomed to crumble. As seen in 1933, they actually lost votes, and this was largely because the situation of Germany was getting better. After only four weeks as chancellor, Hitler urged Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag, and to call for yet another election. Then an incredible event happened, an arson attack on the Reichstag on February the 27th of 1933. A single individual named Marinus van der Lubbe, a Dutch communist, had done it. I bet you are arching your eyebrows, saying, what a coincidence that a single communist did this? There's no way it was not planned by the Nazi party. Well, historians still debate this one. But most say, yes, it actually was a single communist who did this, shockingly. Regardless, Hitler immediately takes to action and demands Paul von Hindenburg issue the Reichstag Fire Decree. What this did was nullify key civil liberties of German citizens such as the right to speak, assemble, protest, and due process. Think of it as a martial law situation. The idea was to stop any further acts of terrorism from occurring. But in reality, Hitler used it as a mandate to arrest the communists in Germany and anyone who could oppose the Nazi party. Then the election Hitler called for occurred on March the 5th of 1933, and would you know it, the Nazis won a whopping 44% of the vote, but failed to win an absolute majority. Hitler then pressed for a vote on what was called the Enabling Act of 1933 which would give his cabinet the right to enact laws without the consent of parliament for over four years. He used every single means necessary to ensure two-thirds voted for it. He had gotten rid of the communists effectively from the Reichstag fire decree and used bribery, threats of violence, and promises to earn votes from other political parties. Imagine brown shirts everywhere, looming over your shoulders as you had to vote on such a thing. All the parties voted, 444 yay versus 94 nay, all social democrats of course. Now Hitler had virtually absolute power, and began to dissolve all the other parties as you can imagine. Hitler then purged his own party in what became famously known as the Night of the Long Knives. Many were murdered, accused of conspiring against the government. In 1934, Hitler combined the office of the presidency with chancellorship, forming the title Führer, 
and would effectively be the dictator of Nazi Germany until his death in 1945. I can hear so many of my professors screaming at me in my head about the blasphemy that was this brutal summarization of the rise of Adolf Hitler. There's so much more to it, but these prelude episodes are becoming quite long, as we saw with the last one. Hell, I didn't even get to talk about one of my favorite characters of this story, the leader of the SA, Ernst Röhm, an openly homosexual Nazi leader. He was killed during the Night of the Long Knives, and there is so much to look into during that story alone. Makes for quite good literature. Anyways, I digress. We need to get into the war in Europe. During the Weimar Republic period of 1918 to 1919, in violation of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany began to gradually and secretly rearm itself. In fact, it did this in collaboration with the Soviet Union, who permitted the Germans to hold military training exercises in the Soviet Union under secrecy. When the Nazis consolidated their power in 1933, they pursued this venture much more aggressively. By 1935, Hitler simply rejected the military restrictions set forth by the Treaty of Versailles and announced rearmament in March. Then in 1936, Hitler remilitarized the Rhineland. As you can imagine, the party that came into power in Germany had anti-communism built into the literal cake of its ideology. It was only a matter of time before it began to butt heads with the USSR. Well, who else hated communism as much as the Nazi party? Well, the most anti-communist nation of all, the Empire of Japan. Both nations signed the Anti-Comintern Pact in November of 1936. Now, this pact was more of a statement than any political commitment. It was a recognition of mutual ideological alignments. The two countries shared a common antagonist. Hell, the USSR was always the main rival to Japan, at around the same level as that of the United States. Benito Mussolini built his fascist regime on opposing communists. So Italy joined the pact in 1937, followed by Spain and Hungary in 1939. Japan hoped that this pact would turn into a military alliance against the Soviets, but Hitler would surprise the hell out of them by signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Stalin in 1939. As Germany rearms itself, it disregards the Treaty of Versailles. Well, the UK and France can't seem to stop its momentum. They both take an approach of appeasement towards Germany, and that of Italy. Italy would invade Ethiopia in 1935, a country that had around 500,000 soldiers, some of whom were armed with spears and bows. The rest had outdated equipment going as far back as the early 1900s. The Italians would go as far as to use mustard gas in aerial bombardments in violation of the Geneva Convention against combatants and civilians. Hundreds of thousands of Ethiopian civilians died. Multiple massacres occurred, such as the Yekatite 12 massacre and the Gondrand massacre. Despite the numerous advantages the Italians had between 1935 to 1940, they are estimated to have had over 200,000 killed or wounded during this war. As you can imagine, the international condemnation was quite large. Though Japan would recognize the Italian Empire quite fast, and the Italians, in turn, would recognize that of Manchukuo.
The Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936, and both the Nazi government and Italy aided the nationalists under Francisco Franco. This was an excellent opportunity to test military equipment out, sort of like a practice run for what was to come. In fact, Claude Bowders, the U.S. ambassador to Spain, during the war called it a dress rehearsal for World War II later on. Hitler then tried to prop up a Nazi party in his homeland of Austria, which did not go according to plan, and thus he simply marched his troops straight into Austria, forcing the Anschluss. That was a real eye-opening moment for France and Britain, who wished to avoid war at all cost, particularly because they were not fully prepared to fight one yet. Then Hitler advocated for part of Czechoslovakia to be handed over to Germany in 1938. He spoke to the German Congress, stating, quote, I am asking neither that Germany be allowed to oppress three and a half million Frenchmen, nor am I asking that three and a half million Englishmen be placed at our mercy. Rather, I am asking, demanding, that the oppression of three and a half million Germans in Czechoslovakia cease, and that the inalienable right to self-determination take its place. End of quote. A large portion of what is called the Sudetenland, the western part of Czechoslovakia, held a large population of ethnic Germans. Hitler argued they were being oppressed by the government and treated like second-class citizens. Surely, they belonged with their own people, whom they were torn apart from because of the outcome of World War I. In reality, Czechoslovakia had been building up its military and defensive fortifications since the rise of the German military showed itself around 1935. The Czechoslovakians built massive defensive structures similar to the French Maginot Line along its borders with Austria and Germany, over 264 heavy blockhouses and 10,000 pillboxes were complete by the time Hitler advocated for the Sudetenland. On top of its massive defenses, it boasted a fairly modern military. If Germany invaded them, they would have to have a bloodbath of a time getting past the defensive lines, and by the time they got past them, if they did at all, Czechoslovakia could count on its allies, like Britain or France, to come in to its aid. But what happens if Germany simply annexes the western chunk of the country? Well, the defensive lines are then useless. So let's take a chance to talk about appeasement, as it's going to play a focal point in all of this. The League of Nations, or better said, Britain and France, took a policy of appeasement instead of collective security. When Japan began invading Manchuria, and was even found guilty of doing so, the Western powers simply did not recognize the new puppet state set up by Japan. Yet little to no other efforts were made to punish Japan, and this is something that Hitler and Mussolini both took notice of. In 1935, Hitler demanded Germany be allowed to build up its navy, despite it violating the Treaty of Versailles. The UK permitted it. Then Italy invaded Ethiopia. The League of Nations applied sanctions, but not on coal or oil, as they thought it might provoke a war. Sure, the Italian economy suffered, but in reality, it just drove the Italians straight into the arms of the Germans. 
1936, Hitler remilitarized the Rhinelands, a real gamble because he had no way of knowing what Britain or France might do. He even gave orders to his officers. If there was any French resistance, they were to withdraw immediately. So France asked Britain to back it up, but Britain did not have the necessary military at the time to do so. So they let the Germans do it. When the Spanish Civil War broke out, Britain and France sat by idly, as Germany and Italy supported one side against the other. Then the Anschluss occurred in a blink of an eye. The House of Commons had Chamberlain stating, quote, The fact is that nothing could have arrested what was actually happening in Austria, unless this country and other countries had been prepared to use force. End of quote. Well, when Hitler demanded the Sudetenland, Prime Minister Chamberlain personally met with Hitler to find a solution to avert war. The three-hour meeting did not go too well, and Hitler demanded of Chamberlain to accept the self-determination of the Sudeten Germans. Britain and France then demanded Czechoslovakia cede to Germany all territories in which the German population represented over 50%. In exchange for that concession, Britain and France would guarantee the independence of Czechoslovakia, which they rejected. Germany turned up the dial on the impending crisis by creating terrorist organizations to put pressure on Czechoslovakia. Then good old Chamberlain flew back all the way over to Germany to talk to Hitler again. This time, Chamberlain was in for a real show of shadows and mirrors. Hitler planned out a meeting with some extravagant performances. At the offset, Hitler demanded not just the Sudetenland, but, quote, Czechoslovakia to be completely dissolved, and its territories redistributed to Germany, Poland, and Hungary, and to take it or leave it, because since our last meeting on the 15th, Czechoslovakia's actions had claimed the lives of Germans. End of quote. Chamberlain was shocked by this statement, and he had come prepared to allow the Sudetenlands to be handed over. Then, all of a sudden, one of Hitler's aides barged into the room to inform Hitler more Germans were being killed in Czechoslovakia, upon which Hitler screamed, quote, I will avenge every one of them. The Czechs must be destroyed. End of quote. The meeting ended abruptly, with Chamberlain going back to his hotel room. Then Hitler calls him up and says he's willing to annex the Sudetenlands, with no designs on the other territories, provided the Czechoslovakians begin the evacuation of ethnic Czechs from the German-majority territories. This all Hitler called a gift, out of respect for the fact that Chamberlain was willing to back down somewhat on his earlier positions. Hitler then ended by saying, with the annexation of the Sudetenlands, Germany would hold no further territorial claims upon Czechoslovakia and would enter into a collective agreement to guarantee the borders of Germany and Czechoslovakia. So you might be asking yourself, what did Czechoslovakia do during all of this talk amongst other nations about its nation? They put on a decree of general mobilization for war with over one million men joining the army to defend the country. The Soviet Union backed this up, stating its willingness to come to their aid, 
provided they would be allowed to cross through Poland and Romania, which both countries said absolutely no. Germany issued an ultimatum to Czechoslovakia in late September to allow the annexation without delay. Thus, Britain, France, and Germany brought Czechoslovakia to the table on September the 25th to agree to the demands, and Hitler pressed more demands. Now he insisted the claims of ethnic Germans in Poland and Hungary needed to be satisfied. This prompted a firm letter to Hitler, stating Britain and France wanted a peace to end the crisis, and Hitler responded that the Sudetenland was, quote, The last territorial demand I have to make in Europe. The Czechoslovakians had until September the 28th at 2 p.m. to cede the Sudetenlands, or Germany will go to war. End of quote. Well, with four hours on the clock until the deadline, the British ambassador to Italy, Lord Perth, requested an urgent meeting. Perth, under instructions from Chamberlain, requested that Mussolini mediate negotiations with Hitler to urge him to delay the ultimatum. Mussolini reportedly told his ambassador to Germany, quote, Go to the Fuhrer at once and tell him the request, and I will be at his side but I request a 24-hour delay before hostilities begin. In the meantime, I will study what can be done to solve the problem. Hitler got the message and relayed to a French ambassador this. My good friend, Benito Mussolini has asked me to delay for 24 hours the marching orders of the German army, and I agree. Of course, this was no concession, as the invasion date was set for October the 1st of 1938. End of quote. And so a deal was to be reached on September the 29th when Adolf Hitler, Neville Chamberlain, Benito Mussolini, and Edouard Dalizier signed the Munich Agreement. Britain and France informed Czechoslovakia that it could either resist Nazi Germany alone or submit to the prescribed annexations. The Czechoslovakian government realized the hopelessness of fighting the Nazis alone, and reluctantly capitulated by September the 30th. Not only did Hitler gain the Sudetenland, but it also gave him control over the rest of Czechoslovakia, as long as he promised to go no further. Chamberlain went to Hitler and asked him to sign a peace treaty between the United Kingdom and Germany, which Hitler happily did. Then, famously, Chamberlain flew back to Britain and delivered the Peace in Our Time speech holding the signed paper to all the crowds in London. If you have not seen this footage, well, I recommend checking it out. It was one of the most ridiculous moments in all history. Although there has been some evidence that's come to light to support the idea that Chamberlain had no illusions about the upcoming war, he simply did what he had to, to delay the war until Britain could prepare itself. But if you look at this from a wargaming point of view, Czechoslovakia and France made for an excellent force to be reckoned with, even if Britain wasn't ready for war in 1938 or 1939. It was not at all advantageous to Germany to face Czechoslovakian defensive lines when France could batter them right back. 
Hitler went on allegedly to say this after the whole affair. It is as follows, quote, Gentlemen, this has been my first international conference, and I can assure you that this will be my last. If ever that silly old man comes interfering here again with his umbrella, I will kick him down the stairs and jump on his stomach in front of the photographers. Also, in one of his public speeches after signing the Munich Agreement, Hitler declared, Thank God we have no umbrella politicians in this country. End of quote. And so Czechoslovakia lost over 800,000 citizens, most of its industry, and a large portion of its national defenses, leaving the rest of it completely powerless to resist any subsequent invasions. In the following months, the nation ceased to exist, as parts of it were annexed to Germany, Hungary, and Poland. By March of 1939, the Wehrmacht moved into the remaining parts of it, and it was proclaimed a protectorate. At this point, Hitler was convinced that the Western nations would not put up any effective resistance to him. In one speech to his commanders-in-chief, he said, quote, Our enemies have leaders who are below average. No personalities, no masters, no men of action. Our enemies are small fry. I saw them in Munich. End of quote. Then Hitler sought the annexation of the free city of Danzig, whom actually wanted to be annexed as they were mostly ethnic Germans. He also sought the Polish corridor. If you take open a map of the 1930s, you will notice that East Prussia is separated by Poland and Danzig. This, as you can imagine, was strategically not very sound. Hitler issued a demand to annex Danzig and the Polish Corridor, leading the Polish to form a military alliance with the United Kingdom and France by March the 31st of 1939. Hitler withdrew from the German-Polish Non-Aggression Pact signed in 1934 and the Anglo-German Naval Agreement of 1925 simultaneously on April the 28th of 1939. Then, as I mentioned, Germans signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August the 23rd, ensuring the Soviets would not go to war if Germany invaded Poland. In fact, during this time period, Hitler learned that France and Britain had failed to secure an alliance with the Soviet Union against Germany because the Soviets were much more interested in invading Poland as well. Then on August the 31st of 1939, the Germans performed a false flag operation. It was led by the Schutzstaffel, who faked a Polish attack on the Gliwice German radio station. Basically, a bunch of SS were dressed in Polish uniforms and they murdered some prisoners and made the bodies look like they had been killed by Poles. This was propagandized amongst other small incidents to give legitimacy for the invasion of Poland. Seven German panzer divisions with over 2,000 tanks acted in coordination with other elements of the military, punching holes in the enemy lines and isolating selected units which would be encircled and destroyed. This was followed up by mechanized infantry and foot soldiers, while the Luftwaffe provided tactical and strategic air power, particularly with their Stuka dive bombers, which disrupted the enemy lines of supply and communication. Altogether, this became known as Blitzkrieg.
the Lightning War. Nazi Germany invaded Poland on September the 1st of 1939 alongside the Soviet Union, who joined in on September the 17th. Britain and France declared war on Germany on September the 3rd, but did little to help Poland, in what can only be described as pure carnage. The campaign would last until October the 6th, though the Poles never formally surrendered. Nazi Germany threw 2,000 tanks. 900 bombers, 400 fighters, and 1.5 million men in 60 divisions at Poland. They smashed into Polish defenses along the border and advanced on Warsaw in a massive encirclement attack. In the first day of the invasion, the Luftwaffe attacked civilian targets and columns of refugees fleeing in terror. The initial bombing of Warsaw saw the killing of up to 6 to 7 thousand civilians. Poland had only 300 planes, but managed to take down an estimated 246 to a possible 285 German aircraft, and damaged another 276 more. The Poles were outnumbered and outgunned in every aspect, but they fought tenaciously. It cost the Germans 17,000 dead, another 30,000 wounded, 236 or so tanks, and 800 other vehicles. The Poles had a decent defense strategy on the Romanian bridgehead, but because of the Soviet Union attacking them in the east, this became useless. The Soviets hammered the nail into the coffin of Poland on October the 6th with the Battle of Kok, forcing the city of Warsaw to surrender. Eventually, a campaign of ethnic cleansing would occur led by the Einsatzgruppen, who would execute tens of thousands of Polish civilians at over 760 mass execution sites. Between 1939 and 1945, an estimated 4.9 to 5.7 million Poles were killed by German forces, and another 150,000 to a million by the Soviets. The American journalist, John Gunther, wrote in December of 1939, quote, The German military campaign was a masterpiece. Nothing quite like it has ever been seen in military history. End of quote. Poland was split in half by the Nazis and the Soviets. It goes without saying, Poland suffered immensely. But we need to take a detour to Asia. You simply can't talk about the war in Europe or Asia as two isolated events. They infected each other and quite heavily. At this point in 1939, after two years of bloody fighting, the Japanese began a campaign against the island of Henan in February. The Japanese hoped to use the island as a base of operations for its navy and air force to perform operations in southern China. Henan was also a territory used by the Chinese to communicate with the outside world and import war materials. I like you to think of China during this war as something like a faucet, where there are many leaks for war materials to get in from supportive nations like the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. Japan throughout this conflict will be struggling bitterly to close up all of these leaks so that they can finally end what has become the China problem, 
You see, they have been bogged down in a war with China and are unable to end the conflict. At Henan, the IGN 5th Fleet under Admiral Kondo easily takes the island, killing an estimated 3,000 NRA. Simultaneously, the Japanese are attacking Nanchang, where they successfully occupy the city by May and further this up by consolidating their forces in Changxi and Hunan. Still, with all that the Japanese have managed to conquer, foreign aid, particularly from Britain, is pouring into China through Hong Kong and Indochina. Japan would love nothing more than to stop these major leaks, but they do not want a war with the West. Yet. Now, as I had said, the Japanese signed the Anti-Comintern Pact with Germany because the Soviet Union remained its primary enemy. Certainly, many in the IGA saw the USSR as the primary threat to Japan. And here is where you're going to get two major factions within the IGA and the IGN. There are those, mostly in the IGA, who support a military strategy called Hoku Shinran, the Northern Expansion Doctrine. It's the Kodaha faction, known as the Imperial Way, that are the largest supporters for this idea. The idea behind the Hoku Shinran was to perform an invasion into southern Siberia and outer Mongolia, ending at Lake Bakal, where they would set up a defensive line. They had already tried to establish this during the Russian Civil War as part of the Siberian intervention, but failed to create a buffer state. Now, since 1932, despite no formal declaration of war, there were Soviet-Japanese border clashes. From 1935 to 1939, there was over 108 incidents involving shooting and small-scale battles. The major problem for Japan was during this time, the Soviets continuously built up the defenses on the border with Manchuria, while the Kwangtung army saw most of their elite fighting forces diverted to the ongoing war in China, leaving their border weaker and weaker. In 1938, one of these border clashes turned into quite a catastrophe. It was called the Battle of Lake Kashan. A Soviet general named Leishkov, in charge of the NKVD forces in the Soviet Far East at Hunshin, had defected and provided the Japanese with intelligence on the local Soviet forces. He told them there had been a recent purge of army officers and the Soviet Far Eastern forces were in quite poor condition. Then the Kwangtung army decoded a Soviet message on July the 6th of 1938, stating the Soviets were looking to occupy some high grounds west of Lake Kasan, in the disputed area of Shang Kufang, which overlooked the Korean port city of Rajin, as well as the strategic railways linking Korea to Manchuria. During the next two following weeks, Soviet border troops were moving into the area and began fortifying the mountain range. The Kwangtung army were suspicious of this action, to say the least, so they pushed the Japanese government to demand the removal of the Soviet border troops from the area. The demand they sent was rejected. Uh-oh. Thus, the IGA, with some Manchu Kuo forces led by Kotaku Seito, something like 7,000 men, were ordered to expel the enemy from Shangkufang. 
Sato performed a night attack on July the 31st of 1938 with about 1,000 of his men, and they managed to take down a Soviet garrison of 300 men in Shangkufang. They also knocked out 10 tanks. Casualties were quite light, 34 dead and 99 wounded. Not a bad day for the Japanese. Then 379 IGA forces managed to surprise and rout 300 Soviets in Shaoshoufang. They knocked out around 7 tanks, again light casualties, 11 dead, 34 wounded. Not such a bad day again. From this point, the IGA began to dig in and build up defenses, requesting reinforcements, but the IGA command would not hand over any, cause they knew it would escalate the incident. Well, it was all fun and games up until this point. Cause on July the 31st, the People's Commissar for Defense, Clement Voroshilov, ordered the readiness of the 1st Coastal Army and Pacific Fleet. 356 Soviet tanks commenced attacks on August the 2nd against the IGA forces at Shangkufang, and the IGA were battered out of their minds. One IGA artillery commander noted the Soviets fired more shells in one day than the IGA would in what was to be a two-week affair. Despite this onslaught, the IGA used anti-tank defenses with disastrous results because the Soviets were poorly coordinated. Thousands of Soviet troops were killed and wounded, with at least 46 tanks being knocked out and another 39 damaged. While the Soviets had superior armor, to be sure, the IGA had the advantage of a railway close to the battlefield, so they were much quicker to move their positions and managed to build up an entrenched fortification quite fast. The Soviets responded with aerial bombing, followed up by tanks and artillery, eventually pushing the IGA out. The IGA attempted counterattacks, but could not hope to retake the positions. The situation began to really look like a war, and this prompted the Japanese government to ask for a ceasefire on August the 11th as the Soviets reoccupied the heights. Despite the overwhelming forces, the Soviets tossed at the IGA. The Soviets suffered more casualties than they took. The Japanese military analyzed the results of the battle and did not learn enough to keep themselves out of another major battle that would occur next year. Between the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo and the Soviet allied communist state of the Mongolian People's Republic was a river called Kalkingol. On May the 11th of 1939, a Mongolian cavalry unit entered an area which was disputed with Japan, allegedly to allow their horses to graze. The Manchukuo cavalry attacked them to drive them back across their side of the Kalkingol River. Two days later, the Mongolian force returned in greater numbers and the Manchukuoans were unable to dislodge them. So the IJA got more involved and on May the 14th they sent an expeditionary force to force the Mongolians to withdraw. Guess what? The Mongolians returned with Soviet forces now, but this time they encircled the expeditionary force and destroyed them. The expeditionary force suffered 63% casualties, with 97 killed. On June the 2nd of 1939, Joseph Stalin was quite angry at the commander of the Soviet Far East forces a man named Commandarm Grigory Stern. 
So Stalin sent a man you might have heard of before, Georgi Zhukov, to take command of the forces and to eliminate the Japanese provocations if they came about. Well, provocations were going to come about as the IGA sent a force of 30,000 on June the 27th and the IGA air forces struck the Soviet airbase at Tamsak Byak in Mongolia. This airstrike was done by the Kwangtung Army without permission of Tokyo HQ, and in an effort to prevent escalation, Tokyo HQ ordered no more air attacks to occur on Soviet airbases. Throughout June, the Soviet Mongolian forces and the Manchukuo Japanese forces engaged in small-scale battles, nothing amounting to too much, until the end of the month when the permission was given to expel the invaders to the commander of the IGA. The IGA forces, supported by 80 tanks, crossed the Kalkangol River, driving the Soviets back towards Bait Saigon Hill. However, Zhukov was waiting for the attack. He sent 450 tanks and armored cars supported by infantry to attack the IGA from three different sides. The IGA were practically encircled, and they lost half of their armored units as they struggled to fight back and withdraw. The two armies sparred for the next two weeks along the east bank of the Kalkangol River. A major problem for the Japanese was that they were having issues getting their supplies to the area, as they lacked any motor transport, while Zhukov, whose army was over 460 miles away from its base of supply, had 2,600 trucks supplying them. On July the 23rd, the Japanese launched attacks supported by artillery, and within two days they had consumed half of their ammunition stores. The situation was terrible. They suffered 5,000 casualties and made little progress breaking the Soviet lines. Then Zhukov unleashed an offensive on August the 20th using 4,000 trucks to transport supplies from Chita base. He assembled around 500 tanks, 550 fighters and bombers, and 50,000 infantry, supported by armored cars. This mechanized force attacked the Japanese first using artillery and the aircraft as his armor and infantry crossed the river. General Zhukov said of this moment, quote, The strike of the air force and artillery was so powerful and successful that the enemy was morally and physically suppressed, and during the first hour and a half, could not even open artillery fire. The observation posts, communication lines, and fire positions of the Japanese artillery were destroyed. End of quote. A Japanese officer named Fukada, who perished during the attack, wrote in his diary, quote, the fighter and bomber planes of the enemy, some 50 of them, appeared in the air groups. At 6.30 a.m., the enemy artillery opened massive fire. It is horrible. The observation posts are doing everything possible to spot the enemy artillery, but without any success, because the enemy bombers and fighters bomb and shell all of our troops. The enemy is triumphant all along the front. Then on August the 21st, he wrote this. A multitude of Soviet Mongolian aircraft are bombing our positions. Their artillery is worrying us all the time. After the bombing raids and the artillery fire, the enemy infantry charges to attack. The number of killed is increasing. 
During the night, the enemy aviation bombed our rear positions. End of quote. The IGA were quickly flanked by the fast-moving Soviet armor and encircled by August the 25th. The IGA made attempts to break out of the encirclement, but failed. They refused to surrender, despite overwhelming artillery and aerial bombardments, and by the 31st, the Japanese forces on the Mongolian side of the border were completely destroyed. Over 8,000 Japanese were dead, with another 8,000 wounded. They lost 162 aircraft and 42 tanks. Because of the Japanese military doctrine, many refused to surrender. The Soviets suffered 8,000 dead, with 15,000 wounded. By some estimates, they lost 253 tanks and 250 aircraft. This led the Soviets and Japanese to sign a ceasefire on September the 15th. As you can imagine, the results were quite horrifying. If you want to know more about this insane battle, might I recommend checking out Kings and Generals over at YouTube. They did a video on the Battle of Kalkin Gol. They covered every aspect of it, really showing off everything. The different tanks, armored cars, weaponry, aircraft, it's really awesome. Go give it a look. This battle had a very large impact on World War II, though it's rarely heard about in the West. For the Soviets, it was the first victory of the soon-to-be-famous Georgi Zhukov, who would go on to earn his first of four Hero of the Soviet Union awards. For the Japanese, there was two large lessons to be learnt. One was the material disparity that they had with a foe like the Soviets. The Soviets simply outclassed them in armor. The Japanese tanks could never hope to match the Soviets, and this was a tremendous issue. Our friend, the Tiger of Malaya, General Tomoyuki Yamashita, would be dispatched to Germany to learn more about tank tactics, and he would get a great lesson with the invasion of France. After witnessing the Blitzkrieg, Tomoyuki Yamashita would return to Japan, and he would stress the need for mechanization and for medium tank production but the Japanese could not hope to meet such production to compete with the Soviets. The second major lesson the Japanese learnt was that they must abandon the Hoku Shinran strategy completely. Even before 1939, there was a stress for another strategy, Nan Shinran, the Southern Expansion Doctrine. This strategy was heavily backed by the IGN, who sought to invade the resource-rich territories in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And so the Japanese got a bloody nose, one they would never forget. From this point on, the strategy of Japan was to keep a peace with the Soviets as long as possible in order to achieve their goals in China, and soon in the Asia-Pacific. Concurrently, in China, by the way, the IGA were beginning to attack the cities of Sichuan and Zhaoyang after they had captured Wuhan. The NRA managed to stop their advance on Sichuan, and this gave them further confidence to counterattack the Japanese at Zhaoyang. By the end of May of 1939, the NRA successfully expelled the IGA. The Japanese were furious at the major setbacks, and needed to restore morale to what seemed to be a stalemate on the Chinese front.
Thus, the IGA made a new offensive on the major city of Shangsha, where they were met by General Zhu Yi and his magnetic warfare. We already mentioned this battle in a previous episode, the First Battle of Shangsha. It resulted in the first time a major Chinese city successfully repelled the Japanese. Zhu Yi followed this up by decimating the retreating IGA forces, and by October the 10th, the success of these counterattacks saw China recovering much of Hunan, Hebei, and Jiangxi. Yet despite this, the Japanese would cut off Shangxing from the ocean, and effectively cover up that leak to foreign aid, leaving only the Burma Road, and later on the Hump, available to move supplies to China. Chiang Kai-shek then proceeded to launch a winter offensive on multiple fronts in an attempt to bog down the Japanese. I can't possibly go into depth on this one. It involves just about all of East China, and it's an enormous affair. What you need to know is that in late November until March of 1940, the NRA inflicted over 20,000 casualties on the IGA, showcasing to Britain and the United States that China was at least able to tie down the Japanese from helping its Axis allies. From this point on, Britain and America began to loan a ton of money to China for their war effort. Chiang Kai-shek was finally seeing some hope. As the winter offensive was ending in China, Nazi Germany was preparing for its major offensive against France. Yet in order to secure itself, the Nazis first had to capture Denmark and Norway. The invasion of Denmark lasted six hours and was the shortest military campaign conducted by the Germans during the war. The Germans dropped paratroopers and made amphibious assaults simultaneously. Casualties on both sides were extremely low. The small nation of Denmark knew it could not hope possibly to defend itself. It was forced to capitulate on April the 9th of 1940. Since that moment, the Danes adopted a saying, Aldrich mir nein April, never again on April the 9th. The invasion of Denmark, however, was just a means to an end to launch an invasion of Norway. Germany needed to secure Norway in order to secure their iron ore, which predominantly came from Sweden. The Allies knew of its importance and would not allow Germany to take a foothold in Scandinavia uncontested. There was much debate on how to hinder Germany's supplies from Scandinavia. Paul Renault and Sir Winston Churchill both wanted aggressive action, but many in their governments knew occupation of Norway or that of Sweden would most likely do more harm than good possibly driving the neutral countries into the arms of Germany. Churchill wanted to cut off Germany from Scandinavia by mining the waters along the Norwegian coast and near the Rhine River, where German transport traffic moved. This was to be called Operation Wilfred. The idea was to mine key areas where there was a lot of traffic, to push the German fleet into more open waters where the Royal Navy could possibly attack them. However, the French vetoed the operation for three months since it targeted the Rhine, and they feared air attacks on their local munitions factories in the area. Now in Germany, 
They knew the Allies represented a large threat to their iron ore supply. Many commanders had informed Hitler of the possibility of Allied occupation of Norway and how it could severely hinder Germany. Something needed to be done. The German plan to invade Norway was called Operation Wesselbung, and it relied on two factors. Number one was surprise. Norway was very close to Britain, and both the Norwegian resistance and British intervention could lead to a catastrophe. The second was to use faster German warships rather than the slow merchant ships or troop ships. This would allow for all targets to be occupied simultaneously, which was simply impossible with normal transport ships. The Germans would be throwing a hundred thousand troops in seven divisions, being transported by dozens of destroyers with cruiser support, and the Luftwaffe would be helping with over 582 transport aircraft, alongside hundreds of fighters and bombers. The Norwegians fielded 55,000 troops, which were backed up by an Allied expeditionary force of 38,000. Command of Operation Wesserbung was given to General Nicholas von Volkenhorst, who directed the mission as such, quote, the task of Group 21, capture by surprise of the most important places on the coast, by sea, and airborne operations. The Navy will take over the preparation and carrying out of the transport by sea of the landing troops as well as the transport of the forces, which will have to be brought to Oslo in a later stage of the operation. It will escort supplies and reserves on the way over by sea, the Air Force, after the occupation has been completed, will ensure air defense, and I will make use of the Norwegian bases for air warfare against Britain. End of quote. Between the 7th and 9th of April, there is sporadic skirmishes between confused German warships and the Royal Navy. In the beginning, the Allies are not exactly sure what the Germans are doing. Many believe the German Navy is trying to break out, of the naval blockade that the Allies were placing upon them in the Atlantic trading routes. Both sides lose a few ships. Then on April the 9th, the landings begin, first at Igersund, which is captured without any resistance, followed by Enendal, where paratroopers are landed, in Oslo airport and other airfields, taking them by complete surprise. Then the Germans land at Narvik, where they will have two naval battles and the German destroyers get completely wiped out by the Royal Navy. The major problem for the Allies was that Germany successfully assaulted multiple key targets simultaneously, taking the Norwegian forces completely off guard. On top of this, the Norwegian government ordered only partial mobilization when it all broke out, hampering operations. The Germans also had a inside man Vidkun Kiesling, who was broadcasting over the radios that there was a coup going on, and that he was going to take an active role as the new Prime Minister of Norway. This all led to what is now called Panic Day of April the 10th. From April the 11th onwards, the fighting breaks out, and soon the Allies begin to land their own expeditionary forces to combat the invasion, and we see a multitude of battles. The overall plan of the Allies was to land in northern parts of Norway and make a three-pronged attack against the Norwegian coastal city of Trondheim. 
while the Norwegian forces tried to contain the German forces in the south. The Allies specifically wanted control of Trondheim, Bergen, and Navik, which would virtually close the Germans off from the North Sea. Unfortunately, the Germans initially landed at Bergen, Trondheim, and Narvik, amongst others. Early on, the German forces who landed at Trondheim linked up with their counterparts in Oslo. The Norwegians had failed to delay them from linking up, and by April the 20th, the Franco-British forces, who intended to capture Trondheim, knew this was no longer feasible. So the Allies called off the plans to recapture Trondheim, and instead began a campaign into the east of Norway. A series of battles occurred over three weeks with the Germans, pushing them north from Oslo. The Germans enjoyed a huge advantage, aerial support. Their Stuka dive bombers were terrifying the Norwegians particularly. And they had every reason to be terrified. The Norwegians lost almost all anti-aircraft capability early on in the war, thus the Germans were freely airstriking positions. Also, when the German panzers were unleashed, the Norwegians had no real countermeasures. The British tried to set up their own air bases in Allied-held parts of northern Norway, but they simply could not accumulate enough before German bombers began taking them out. The south of Norway was the first to really collapse. The Norwegian forces were encircled and bombarded. Panic set in quick, and they soon surrendered. The Allied forces tried to recapture Bergen, but the Luftwaffe hammered them out. The cause was not lost for the Allies, necessarily. In May, they would make some gains, such as the recapture of Narvik, but then something changed the entire game. Suddenly, the Germans invaded Luxembourg, taking it with virtually no resistance on May the 10th. Then they smashed right into the Netherlands. The Germans made quick work, conquering the Netherlands by May the 17th. Simultaneously, they were invading Belgium. The Allies were facing an impeding invasion of France, and thus by May the 24th, they were evacuating their forces in Norway to respond to this enormous crisis. They only notified the Norwegians on June the 1st, as they evacuated their forces, and by June the 10th, Norway had to surrender, and was thus occupied by Germany. Back in continental Europe, Germany was about to smash into France once it had fought its way through Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands. In May of 1940, the Allies had the numerical advantage, a French army of 2.24 million, a British expeditionary force of 500,000, a Dutch army of 400,000, and a Belgian army of 650,000. Amongst them, they held 4,204 tanks, 3,562 aircraft for the French Air Force. Germany was going to throw at them 3 million men, 2,438 tanks, and 3,578 aircraft. On paper, this was not looking good for Germany. And the longer time it took, the worse it would get as the Allies could outproduce Germany by a large margin. Yet Germany would make a bold and practically suicidal move. In the early 1930s, France had built what is called the Maginot Line. It was an incredible series of fortifications along its border with Germany. 
There has been a large misconception with the Maginot Line. A lot of people presume it was to make France invulnerable to attack. In reality, it served another purpose. In analyzing the Maginot Line, Dr. Ariel Ilan Roth, a previous director of the Global Security Studies program at John Hopkins University, stated the main purpose of the Maginot Line was not, quote, as a popular myth would later have it, to make France invulnerable. It was constructed to make the appeal of flanking far outweigh the appeal of attacking them head on. End of quote. In essence, it served to give the French army the time it required to mobilize and envisioned the Germans entering through Belgium, where the French would be more than capable of maneuvering against them. The major crux of the Maginot Line was that it did not extend through the Ardennes forest, which was believed to be impenetrable. General Philippe Pétain had declared the Ardennes, quote, impenetrable as long as special provisions were taken to destroy an invasion force as it emerged from the Ardennes by a pincer attack. End of quote. The Allies believed that the Ardennes forest was impassable for tanks. Unfortunately for them, a man named Heinz Gaderian confidently proclaimed the feasibility of taking armor through the hills of the Ardennes forest and subsequently was given command for the spearhead of such an attack himself. He was given 1,112 tanks out of Germany's total 2,438 tanks to be supported by 39,000 other vehicles, 130,000 men who were going to go nose to tail on a single road extending over 600 miles. They would be crawling through knotted terrain, and absolute sitting ducks for Allied bombers. The plan was widely disliked by most of the Nazi high commanders because of its enormous risk. Allied forces would need to somehow be completely oblivious to a large army that stretched for miles as it tried to go through single file over difficult terrain. A single traffic jam would be a death sentence. The Germans had to cross the Meuse River before the French recognized the threat and mounted a counterattack. For all of this to work, the Germans needed absolutely everything to go right, and a little bit of luck to be on their side. On May the 10th, the German invasion commenced with tremendous speed. Paratroopers seized airfields in Holland and disabled the Ibn Imal, Belgium's strongest fortress. The Netherlands had 144 combat aircraft, which were met by 247 medium bombers, 147 fighters, and 424 transport aircraft, and 12 seaplanes from Germany. The Dutch Air Force lost half of its aircraft in a single day. To take the Ibn Imal, the Germans resorted to unconventional methods. They landed gliders on top of the fort and unloaded assault teams that disabled the main guns with hollow charges. The largest tank battle up until that point in history was also fought in Belgium. It was called the Battle of Hanut, in which 1,500 armored vehicles began to fight. The Allied forces were able to delay the German panzer divisions and dug in. The French responded as expected by sending its best forces straight into Belgium to prepare for a decisive battle against the German onslaught. 
The Allies sent the French 7th, 9th, and 1st Armies, accompanied by the British Expeditionary Force, all commanded by Gaston Billot, to form a solid front line to stop the German advances in Belgium. They were facing Germany's Group B, commanded by Hans von Salmuth, a formidable force to be sure, but for the Allies, the situation seemed to be amazing. They had already hindered the German advance and were about to form a defensive line that the Germans would not be capable of defeating. It seemed that they were going to force a decisive victory and the Germans would lose everything. The Allies were so excited by their progress in Belgium, they were completely blind to the fact Group B was just a diversion. Group A was commanded by Gerd von Rudstedt, and leading his vanguard was Heinz Guderian, straight through the Ardennes forest. Heinz Guderian charged with the vanguard, ordering his officers to, quote, punch with the fist rather than feel with the fingers. End of quote. The German soldiers under Guderian's command rushed headlong without sleep. To do this, they were issued 20,000 tablets of providitin, a stimulant similar to crystal meth. Some French reconnaissance aircrews reported German armor convoys on the night of May the 10th, but French command assumed it to be a secondary force and not as large as the force that they were seeing in Belgium. Guderian's forces reached the Meuse River on May the 12th and saw their first target, Sedan. The French defenses at Sedan were weak and neglected, as the French did not believe anything significant would attack it. They had no mines, and the French 9th and 2nd armies that defended the area were made up chiefly of poor quality divisions. Many were B divisions, such as the 55th and 71st Infantry. They mostly consisted of reservists. Guderian had one problem with his force. Since he was moving so fast, they lacked adequate artillery support. Everything depended on the support of the Luftwaffe. Almost 1,500 aircraft of the Luftwaffe 3rd and 2nd executed the heaviest aerial bombardment the world had yet to witness. Over 3,940 sorties were flown by nine bomber groups. They carpet-bombed and strafed all fortifications and defensive lines for almost eight hours in the sector. The attacks of the Luftwaffe were so incredible, they psychologically broke the defenders, who fled en masse. Later, German ground assaults would confirm empty bunkers that were fully intact. Telecommunication cables were destroyed. Chaos ensued, with no orders being received to French units. Instead of slowly advancing under artillery support, the German panzer units smashed through the French defenses, taking only a hundred or so casualties, and by May the 14th, the Germans took the area. General Gaston Billot, stunned by this, ordered every available Allied bomber to destroy the bridges across the Meuse River immediately, and said, quote, Over there, we will pass either victory or defeat. End of quote. That day, every Allied light bomber was employed to destroy the three large bridges over the Meuse River, and 44%, over 167 aircraft, were destroyed, with no results. The Luftwaffe had won the battle over the skies. Now Group B's panzer divisions ran amok everywhere, and the French tank units frantically tried to delay them, 
but the French tanks suffered a crucial element the German tanks had, that being radios. Guderian's forces poured across the Meuse River as the French made heroic counterattacks, such as at the village of Stone, south of Sedan. The village would change hands over 17 times, but little could stop Guderian's lightning-fast units. On May the 15th, Guderian's motorized infantry flanked the French 9th Army, and they surrendered en masse because they had no time to even dig in against such heavily armored units. During this, a certain commander had broken through French lines within 24 hours and continued to advance day and night, not giving the French any time to form proper defenses. This commander ended up taking 10,000 prisoners while suffering 36 losses. A man named Ewen Rommel. On May the 15th, French Prime Minister Paul Renault telephoned the new British Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill, and said, quote, We have been defeated. We are beaten. We have lost the battle. Churchill flew to Paris the very next day, demanding of the French General Gamelin, quote, Where is the strategic reserve? He was referring to the one that had saved Paris during World War I, and Gamelin simply responded with, Okun. Churchill then proposed to Gamelin for a large counterattack against the flanks of the German forces, and Gamelin replied, Inferiority of numbers, inferiority of equipment, inferiority of methods. End of quote. The fate of France had been sealed by the breakthrough at the Meuse River. Guderian reached the coast of the English Channel on May the 20th, encircling a pocket of 120 miles long and 85 miles deep. This led to the incredible Dunkirk evacuation, in which 338,226 soldiers managed to be evacuated to Britain. The Battle of France, as Sir Winston Churchill put it, quote, was a colossal military disaster. The whole route and the core of the brain of the British army had been stranded at Dunkirk. End of quote. Upon their rescue, on June the 4th, Churchill called the rescue a miracle of deliverance and followed this up with his legendary speech. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, was subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Over the next few days, the Nazis and Italians will fight some battles in France. By June 14th, Paris is occupied, 
as the French army collapses. The Axis powers prop up a puppet government in Vichy, France, led by Philippe Pitain. Immediately, industrial firms in the Netherlands, Belgium, and France begin to be put to work producing war materials for Germany. Now the Axis prepares for a war against the British Isles. Grand Admiral Erich Reda advises Hitler that air superiority was a precondition for the successful invasion of Britain. Thus Hitler unleashes a massive series of aerial attacks on Britain in what becomes known as the Battle of Britain. Hitler was going to force the isolated island of Britain to surrender. This was the darkest hour for the Allies. All the way in the Eastern Empire of Japan, the news spread of the situation. Japan looked at the British holdings of Hong Kong, Malaya, and Singapore, and realized they were vulnerable and ripe for the picking. In fact, Japan now could stop one of those leaks we mentioned earlier, that of Hong Kong, which was supplying Chiang Kai-shek with aid. Furthermore, since the start of World War II, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had revised the Neutrality Acts with a cash-and-carry policy that allowed for the sale of military arms to China and other allies. After the fall of France, the American population still had no stomach for war, but regardless, FDR intensified the U.S. naval buildup through the Vincent Acts. Japan at this point began to allow German raiders operating in the Pacific to resupply at Micronesia, increasing tensions between Japan and the Allies. This tension would only be heightened, more so when Japan signed the Tripartite Pact in September, officially joining the Axis. But not yet is it in the war effort. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and to continue helping us produce this content, please check out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And after all that, if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. To say tensions were high is an understatement. And ironically, you will be staying tuned for the next episode and the last prelude episode titled Tensions in the Pacific. The powder keg that had been building up to war between the Allies and the Empire of Japan will ignite soon. So join us next time.